We're going to commence our worship tonight with number 401. 401, He took my place and He died for me. A trembling soul I sought the Lord. My sin confessed, my guilt deplored. How soft and sweet His word to me. I took Thy place and died for Thee. Let's stand please as we sing. What a great theme it is for us to sing about and to pray about and to give thanks to the Lord, for we would not be where we are today. We would not know the joy of sins forgiven if it had not been for our Lord going to the cross in our place. 
We should have been nailed there on that cross. We should have suffered and taken the wrath of God. But Christ stepped in our place, and there He died so that we might live and have life and have it more abundantly. Let's come to seek Him now, please, in prayer. Father, it is with joy and thanksgiving that we come once more to the evening service. On the Lord's Day, we have the opportunity to gather with those of like precious faith, and we can come, Lord, to offer our prayer and our praise, our thanksgiving, our worship. And Lord, we do so again tonight in Jesus' holy and precious name. Father, words will fail us to try and express our thanksgiving for the truth that Christ has died in our place. He has gone all the way to the cross, and He has borne all of my judgment, all the wrath that I deserved, Father, has been poured upon Him. And so I pray tonight that every believer, every one of us who know Christ as our own, that we would give thanks, that we would come to think again as deeply as we are able. We will give praise to our great Redeemer. Lord, tonight, hear our prayer. Come, Father, and receive our, our worship from our hearts. The song that we sing as we read the Scriptures, as we open the Word of God in study, Father, apply the truth of Scripture to every heart. We think of any here tonight who are without the Savior, who do not truly and really and personally know Christ. Father, may tonight be the night when they come to meet and receive the Savior. O oh God, we ask that You would work deeply in every soul. And we pray for those not only in our service physically, but watching our service online, that there would be blessing and salvation and joy and peace knowing that Christ is alive and real in our own hearts. And so, Father, we think tonight of those who cannot be with us because of their sickness or infirmities, their age, their difficulty, whatever that case may be. Bless them. Dear Father, we think of our sister congregations. We pray for every one of your servants faithfully preaching the Word of God tonight. Lord, bless them abundantly. We pray for the work in Port Hope and Brother Siman. We ask for blessing upon uh, Brother Diderno in Fredericton. Lord, encourage him and bless him in that work, and may it prosper and grow and be reestablished. We ask, Father, for all of our churches across Canada and the United States, and our missionaries. And Father, outside our denomination, we are asking for blessing 
upon every faithful tongue that is proclaiming the name of Christ. Lord, bless them, encourage their hearts. And Lord, what about those who have gone through persecution, who are suffering at this very moment? We ask, Lord, to bless them and be with them and protect them and provide for every single need they have. So, Lord, hear our prayer tonight. Remember our nation. Remember this time. Because, O oh God, we again stand at a juncture in history where we are in great need. The church of Christ is in great need. Our nation, our leaders, O oh God, preserve for us, we ask in our day, a testimony and a witness that will reverberate across our land. And we pray for the salvation of our leaders. We ask, Lord, that the church of Christ would bear a corporate and public witness in our nation. Lord, we know the forces of evil are strong, and it seems they have multiplied themselves. And Father, You've promised that when the enemy comes in like a flood, that the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against the enemy of the gospel. And we are praying to that end, Lord, because it is the promise of Scripture. And therefore, defeat Satan in all of his machinations against the people of God, against the work of Christ. And Lord, we stand in the joy and truth of the victory that Christ has promised my church will prevail. The gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. And so, Lord, we stand confident in that truth. And let us live, therefore, each day in the light and joy and victory of Calvary and of Christ. Lord, we're thankful for this great truth also, that our Lord Jesus is coming back to this world and we look with anticipation. Perhaps, Lord, we do not look near enough every day for the return of Christ. But we pray that we will walk in that anticipation, with that joy, as we are commanded, lift up our eyes and look heavenward, for our redemption draws nigh. Lord, keep us, we pray, walking in the center of Your will and not caught on when our Christ will return, but to be ready and to be waiting. Lord, hear us in our prayer tonight. Bless our gathering. Bless this time of worship. We ask all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Number 262, as we continue in our praise to the Lord, 262, and we'll stand again as we worship.
stand. You may be seated. And that is good praise to the Lord again tonight. And a great theme that draws, comes out of this hymn, the words taken from John's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 37. I have quoted it oftentimes from the pulpit here. All that the Father giveth me, Jesus said, shall come to me. And him that comes to me, her, the person, the people that come to the Lord, Christ said, I will in no wise, in no way cast out. And that uh, verse of Scripture has a personal theme for me because it was the word that God used to lead me to personal faith and trust in Christ. And to have that reassurance that when you have reached out and stepped out trusting Christ as your own, the Lord will not turn you away. My, there's great confidence in that. Because salvation does not depend upon me. It doesn't depend on my faith per se, me holding on to the Lord. It depends upon God keeping His Word and holding on to me. And that's our joy and that's our, our great hope. We're going to read tonight in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 15. These precious words that we have read often, and certainly as we were going through our study of the life of Christ, we spent quite a considerable time in John 15, as it is worthy of our meditation and our memorization. Now these words are very precious. John 15, first 11 verses. The Lord Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me. He is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples." As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments 
and abide in His love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. We know the Lord will bless His Word to us tonight, and the great theme that comes out of John 15 is our vital connection to the Lord Jesus. It is so important for us to realize our union with Him. We're going to be thinking about that tonight in our message a little later on. A warm word of welcome, and as I mentioned this morning, there's an emphasis on the warm. It's about 25 degrees, I think, down where you are, according to the thermostat. We need to get that computer adjusted to bring the temperature down a bit. And the temperature rises as you come up higher here and then up into the roof space. So in the balcony, I'm sure you folks must be very toasty warm up there. But no sleeping allowed. We want everybody to be very much awake. Happy that you are here in the service. We welcome you in the Savior's precious name. And if you are here for the first time, or maybe you've come back to be with us, we want you to know you're really welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus. And certainly those folks watching our service online tonight, you are very, very welcome. Very happy to see our sister June with us tonight, June Gangadin. June, you were here last Lord's Day evening, and I remember I heard that, but I was away, of course. And we've been thinking about our sister June, who's been a member of our congregation for a long, long time and a faithful member. She says, she don't, take, don't say how many years, she says, but it's been a long, long time, and it's very good to have our sister and her family with us in the service here tonight. Let me emphasize again my great appreciation and thanks to you all for your faithfulness in praying for us while we were over in South Korea for a mission trip, and I'm very thankful that Reverend Kim and his wife, Hannah, Hannah, who's playing the organ, they were uh, with me, or I was with them, I think, more like it, and we enjoyed the Lord's help and presence. The intention of our trip was to go and visit the congregation of Reverend Songki Lee and the work that he started in Korea about 10 years ago. And there is uh, more history that we have learned uh, since our visit there and I'll be sharing that with you on Wednesday night as I make a presentation, showing you some uh, pictures and giving you commentary on that. We were really encouraged. And I want to say how much I appreciate as a pastor the faithful praying of you as God's people. I heard from different reports as I w we were over there that our names and the purpose of our trip were being brought many times before the Lord in prayer in the various uh, prayer services. And that was so encouraging to us. And we realized the support and being carried along by your praying. And we certainly knew the blessing of the Lord and all the details. There was no glitch. There was no problem. And the Lord opened the door and the way for us. It's quite amazing, you know, when you think about planning a trip and booking flights uh, nine months before they come to pass, and all the details setting up, you set your schedule and do it by faith and in prayer, 
And the Lord goes in front and opens the doors and prepares the way. So many logistical things have to come together. And the Lord allowed that to be the purpose and the case. And we are very, very thankful for that. So it is with renewed encouragement that we ask you as a congregation uh, to remember in prayer that work in South Korea and that the Lord would prosper and bless and encourage and cause to grow that congregation, and they would be brought very quickly to a point of constitution where they are officially a member. Currently, they are really a mission church, and we want to see them under a full-fledged congregation. So we're praying and looking to that end. Friends, don't forget that after our service tonight, we'll have a fellowship time downstairs, some light refreshments, and everyone is invited and welcome to be there. And as we're thinking about refreshments, <clears throat> let me remind you that in about four weeks' time, as we have our Christmas service, we're planning an international lunch on December the 24th. Now, next Lord's Day, there will be a paper at the back for you to sign how many people will be coming for your family. We want to make good preparation. These are always very special times, and we look forward to that. And we look forward to it not just for the fellowship we can have, but it's a very important opportunity for you to reach out and invite neighbors and friends to our morning service, to our Christmas Day services, really, because after the morning we'll be having the lunch, and then we'll be having an afternoon praise time. So we want to make the whole uh, a day a real blessing. And if you have a neighbor that you've been thinking, should I invite them to church? There's no better time than on a Christmas Lord's Day to invite them. People are more willing to come at that time. So you invite them along, and neighbors, family members, and friends, and let's really use the opportunity to exalt the Lord, to have the gospel presented, and to see how the Lord will work in the hearts of people. Tuesday evening of this week, there will be the Ladies' Bible Study, and that will be at 7 o'clock, and it's on Zoom. And some folks, if you have not joined into that yet, ladies, you're very welcome. Make sure you get the email link. See our brother Jonathan McAnally, and he will make sure that you get that link for the Tuesday night meeting and you'd be welcome to join up there. Wednesday, our Bible study and prayer time. I already mentioned about that report. That will be at 7.30 on our mission trip to Korea. This coming Saturday, and I failed to mention this this morning, but I think most of the young people know this, that Saturday, December the 2nd, that will be the Young Adult Christmas Dinner and it will be here in the church basement. So it's really a reminder to the young adults to RSVP to where you are supposed to so they know for making the correct uh, preparations. Let's not forget, please, the appeal for our new bus. This is something that we are building and working on. It's going to take a little time to raise the funds that are necessary for this, but this appeal for our church and school and if you would like to, especially at the end of the year, something special on your donation, your offering, to designate that toward our new bus would be good. And uh, I'll mention more again next week, next Lord's Day, about our Christmas card appeal for this year, as you will have the Christmas card in the foyer for you to sign, and it's a congregational appeal. I will mention more about that next Lord's Day. 
Don't forget about the Jamaica mission trip that's scheduled for August 10th to the 17th, 24. And if you'd like to be a part of that, you speak to me as soon as you can. We're going to sing again in our worship number 458. 458. And we will remain seated for the first three verses and then stand for the fourth verse. <clears throat> that final verse. Now please turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. <clears throat> the book of Galatians, chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 16 to 21. 
Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid, or let it not be so. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's bow, please, in prayer, and everyone asking the Lord tonight that He would speak to our hearts, He would speak to your own heart, that you would know what it means to have a living union and relationship with Christ. Our Father, We're very thankful tonight we have the Scripture open in our own language that we can understand. But I pray, Lord, that what is necessary now is the illumination, the light of the Holy Spirit to be upon the Scripture and to write it on our minds. Dear Lord, if we who are believers need that light, How much more those who are yet in the darkness of their own sin. Lord, we pray that tonight there will be liberty in salvation. There will be liberty in growth in grace in our lives so that we will be more conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus. Hear our prayers, Father. For we ask these things now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The Apostle Paul, in every gospel, or rather every epistle that he wrote, he would always begin that epistle with a word of thanksgiving to God for the grace that had occurred in the lives of the people that he was writing to. Uh, There was a great sense of appreciation that the Apostle had, even when he came to write to the Corinthian Christians, because there were many problems in that church, but he could at least rejoice that they had the, the root of the gospel message firmly in their hearts, and he was able to thank the Lord for that, and thank God for the people. When we come to the book of Galatians, that's one thing that is absent here. The Apostle cannot bring himself in the opening verses of the book 
to say thanks to God for these people or their salvation. There's a very real reason why he could not do that. It's because something had happened in that church. They most definitely had received the gospel initially. There was what appeared on the surface to be the evidence of a reception by faith of the gospel, but something went wrong. And when I say something went wrong, it means that some teaching, some people had come into that church and had begun to sow the seeds of false doctrine in that work. And that false doctrine had taken root. And it had taken root to such a degree that Paul now calls into question the very essence of what these people said they believed. He said, the gospel that has been preached among you since I left is not the gospel, but it is another gospel that is similar. And when he said similar, it was similar, but it was of another kind. And it was similar as a counterfeit dollar bill would look very much like a genuine one, but it is a phony one. It is a false currency. And so the gospel that was now being presented and even supported among this congregation was not the right one. And so Paul comes to write the letter to the Galatians with a very heavy heart. He is very burdened because he realizes that if this is not rectified, if this is not corrected and changed and repented of, their testimony, their witness, whatever happened in that church, it will die a very sudden death. And so the apostle says to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has demonized you? Who has so led you down the pathway of deception that you have exchanged the truth for a lie? You can see why now the apostle was not able to start his letter off with some friendly and kind words of thanks to God for their salvation because this was a matter of absolute urgency and of importance. You see, friends, when someone begins to promote a gospel that has a different message about how a person gets from earth to heaven, how a person can be born again and know what it is to be received and justified in the eyes of God, when that message is proclaimed, it is another gospel and it must be rejected. It cannot be for a moment tolerated. It cannot come into the fellowship of a faithful Bible-believing church. 
Because if it does, it will bring with it all of the sordid evils and corruptions of every false teaching and doctrine. And before long, that church that started out on the right course will be off track and going down the wrong road. And so the burden that the Apostle writes and brings to these Galatians is a burden that we, we find even communicated in verse 16 of chapter 2. He says, "...knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ." Even, he says, we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. What was happening in Galatia is that there was a group from the Jewish background that wanted to impose some of the Jewish rituals of the keeping of the law not just to have an outward sort of an appearance, but they said that unless you do this, you cannot be a true Christian. You cannot get to heaven. You cannot be justified. And so you see how important this doctrine and teaching is that if you allow anything else to come in between God and Christ and yourself, then you are not truly a Christian. You are not really born again of the Spirit of God. And that's why when it comes to dealing with many of the heresies and the cults and the isms that are around today, it is so important to evaluate where do they stand on an individual's relationship to Christ. Because if they say or question the person of Jesus Christ, if they question the work that He came to do, if they question how you and I can come into a relationship with Him, then they are a false, a heretical teacher. And so that's why, friends, we must be very, very careful. What Paul is doing here, and the whole point of this teaching, is to show that we are saved by the grace of God solely by the application of the sacrifice of Christ on our account. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, and by faith alone in Him. And when that transaction takes place in us, when we are saved, we are brought into what we call the living relationship or into union with Jesus. And we sometimes call this the indissoluble union. Well, it simply means it cannot be dissolved. It cannot be broken. Once you are a true believer in Christ, once you have truly accepted Him as your own, that can never be severed. If we are held in the hand of our Heavenly Father, 
if He has a grasp upon us and our soul, we can never be taken out of His hand. There is no force, no power in heaven or hell that can do that because we have been secured by the merit and atoning righteousness of our Lord Jesus. And so, friend, if you are saved tonight, it is not going to be a case of musical chairs that you hope when the music stops, when you die, that you'll have a chair to sit down on and you will be welcomed into heaven. No, it's not like that at all. Once we have been saved by God's grace, we are saved forever and forever. And I want us to think tonight about how precious and how special this union that we have with Christ is. In the first thought, it is a most solemn union that we have. We are said in verse number, it's said in verse number 20, and this is really the verse that I want us to use and think about tonight as our text. It says that we are crucified with Christ. As soon as you read a verse like that, it does not really sound very inviting. Dying with someone would be bad enough, but being crucified, which is one of the most barbaric forms of capital punishment, it would be exceedingly worse. And yet, this is the direct statement that the Holy Spirit is making. And so, what does it mean? It was obviously not a literal end of physical life, for Paul continued to be very active in the service of Christ. And the truth is this, that when our Lord died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and we died with Him, that is, my sinful nature was put to death. And as a dead person is not affected by the influences around them, so through our union with Christ in death, we are no longer, and please understand this point, we are no longer controlled by the passions of the flesh to live by them. They are dead to us, and we are dead to them. Now, having died in Christ, we are not under any longer the power and the control of Satan. The ungodly, the unsaved person, really indulges themselves in sin without any apparent guilt or remorse. Immoral thoughts, actions are considered to be part of sort of a human condition and of its enjoyment. But how actually does this work out for the Christian? Because we still wrestle with sinful thoughts and motives. And how could this be if we are said to be dead to sin, even according to this verse of Scripture? What does it mean if I am crucified with Christ, if my old nature has died on the cross with Christ, how is it that I could still be tempted with sin? 
How is it possible that we could say, we could, it could be said of us that we have our old nature and that is still very much alive in that sense? Perhaps we could look at it this way, that when Adam received the judgment of death upon him because of sin in the Garden of Eden, it said that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. But we know that Adam did not die. It was over 900 years later that he actually physically died. But so the the understanding is that the sentence of death was then brought to bear upon him as a human being. Before sin, Adam and Eve in the garden were set to live forever. There was no death upon them. But when they sinned, the judgment of death fell. And they died at that moment spiritually. And they began, they died physically, but that took some time until it came to the point of their physical death. Sometimes we wonder, how does that really work out in a Christian's life? For a believer, once we have been born again, When we have been crucified with Christ, we died in Him, and the sentence of death on our sinful nature was also brought to pass. And from that point in time, we knew salvation was real, and we knew that our salvation was absolutely certain, guaranteed as if we were already in heaven, glorified, as Romans chapter 8 tells us, but we continue in our battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. Perhaps it's seen a little bit like this. If someone was convicted of the death penalty and they had gone through all the judicial process and the judge had brought to bear that judgment upon them and they were now in their prison cell waiting for that day, of their execution. They were still alive. They were still living. But the court had made that judgment upon them, and they were as good as dead in the eyes of the court of the land because of their crime and the judgment that was against them. And so when we think about that, as we died our old nature was put to death on the cross with Christ. So that transaction was taken place that day, and we were viewed in the eyes of a holy God as our old nature was dead and finished and over. But there's a time period from that moment of our salvation until we come to actually die physically when our spirit will be released from our body and our spirit will go to be with our Lord Jesus forever, and we will know then the total separation from all sin and all the influences of the old nature. The Apostle Peter also said, speaking of our connection with the Lord, he said of Christ, who his own self bare our sins in his body on the tree, that we being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, 
to the end, everlasting life. So, yes, the union that we have with Christ is a very solemn one because we are crucified with Him. But it is also a sacrificial union. What do I mean by that? Well, we're told in Galatians 2 and 20 that the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Christ gave Himself for me. And this tells me that in that act of the Lord going to the cross and sacrificing Himself in order that I could be brought into union with Him, it is most definitely a union brought about by the Lord's great sacrifice. It is of utmost importance, of absolute necessity, that we are united to Christ's crucifixion. For if we are not dead with Christ to the world, then we are still very much alive to it. And if we are alive to the world, please understand this, if we are still alive to the world, then we are not alive in Christ. We have no part of Him. We are not saved. And friend, it's a very solemn thing because in the visible church, as the gospel message is proclaimed, it is possible that people have sat under the gospel preaching for maybe years and years, and still they are not saved. Still they're not born again. Still they have not entered into that living relationship with the Lord Jesus. Because if they have not been crucified with Christ, then they have no part of the Lord Jesus. It means I have been put to death on the cross. That my sins were nailed there as the just punishment for the crimes which I have committed. But friends, they weren't judged by God upon me. The idea of me dying with Christ on the cross in no way means that I bore something of the judgment upon myself. That is not what it means at all. But the fact that I died in Christ on the cross, it means that all the wrath of God was funneled upon Him and upon Him alone. I did not pay by way of suffering for my own sin. It's an impossibility. I have nothing to offer to God. Christ has borne all for me. And this enters into the doctrine of what is called the vicarious atonement of our Lord. And the word vicarious, it's a Latin word that simply means in the place of. So you're standing in the place of someone else. When we talk of the vicarious atonement of Christ, it means instead of me suffering for my sin, it means that someone else, and in this place our Lord, took the torment and the punishment of hell upon Himself. Christ really and actually suffered in my place. 
He was the innocent and guiltless Lamb of God who died, the just one for the unjust one. He died, the innocent, for the guilty. And now, this guilty one has been set free. Friend, do you understand what that means? If you are in the Lord tonight, if you are saved by His grace, let the truth of the vicarious atonement of Jesus settle deep down in your soul, and let there be rejoicing and thanksgiving and praising for me, the guilty one, I have been set free, for someone else took what I deserved. He loved me, and He gave Himself for me. Friend, if you're not a believer tonight, if you're out of Christ, I exhort you, I encourage you, I plead with you in Christ's stead. Seek the Lord Jesus now, because you do not know what a day will bring to you in your life. You do not know how much time you have left. And after you die, if you have rejected the Lord, if you have not received Him, there is no more hope for your soul. You are lost for all eternity. And so how important is this teaching? How vital is it that it means for us that all believers have had their sins taken away and all the damning power of those sins and all of the condemnation that they deserved, they all fell upon my Lord. A debt load that I could never have paid. You know the story that Jesus told about the man who owed a great debt to the king? And it was a debt that was so astronomical that he could never have paid in a thousand lifetimes. And he went to plead before the king, and the king forgave him everything. He freely forgave him. And then that very same man went out to someone that owed him a hundred shekels, something minuscule compared. And the man said to that friend, pay me that you owe me. And the man said, I have no money to pay. Give me time and I will pay. And that wicked man said, no, pay me now. And he threw him into prison until he had paid every last shekel. But friend, what that righteous king had forgiven that evil man of by way of illustration that he never could have paid we have owed to God far more. And yet what has the Lord done for us? He has freely forgiven us all. And the sacrificial union that you and I experience tonight is one that is all of grace that cannot be enumerated. It is so rich and so full and so free. Ah, friends, let us think again 
the next time we dabble in some sin, the next time we succumb so easily to the devil's temptation, the next time we barter away our testimony in some cheap way, let us stop and think all that Christ has suffered for us and the great price that He has paid. Some folks have wondered, well, could the Lord have not found some other way to forgive our sin? Did He have to send His Son there? Did there have to be such a drama around the death of the only begotten Son of God? And I say to you, friend, that if the God of heaven, if there had have been some other way by way of remuneration or exchange, or perhaps just forgetting about our sin, just imagining it cast out into the universe somewhere far away, if there had have been some other way, would God the Father have exacted such a high price from His only begotten Son? I say to you, no, friend, because to suggest such a thing would be a monstrous accusation against God. It would accuse Him of some madness, some avarice, some capricious, arbitrary decision. Oh, I will send my Son to pay for the sins of the world. No. It's because there was no other way possible for you to be saved. There was no other way possible for me to be born again. How great is Christ's love for us. He loved us and He gave Himself for us. The hymn writer said, He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them His very own. He bore the burden to Calvary, and He suffered, and He died alone. Such love is unconditional. simply means that there is no reason why the Lord would love me. A dear lady went out of the service this morning. As we were speaking, if you were here on how the Lord takes great pleasure in His people, from Psalm 149. And we think of how and why the Lord would take great pleasure in His people, and we scratch our heads, we say, no, I don't understand it, because why would the Lord take pleasure in me? I'm not worthy of anything. And a dear lady said, I still cannot understand why the Lord saved me. I still don't understand why. What good, what did He see in me? And I said to her, that's the very point. There was no good in you that He saw, nor is there any good in me. It is because the Lord set His love upon me, unworthy as I am. And that's the unconditional love that Christ has for us. But you know, it's very specific. It wasn't something that was just hit or miss. It was a specific love, for Paul said that Christ loved me. 
and He gave Himself for me. It is so specific, friends. Whenever you're having a bad day, stop and think that if the Lord had died on the cross for no one else, if there was no other sinner alive but you, He would have died for you and suffered all of God's punishment for your sins. And so it is a very special and specific love. And we know that the Lord in giving Himself, it was without any reservation. The Lord did not give 99.9% of Himself, but that wouldn't have done. He gave Himself without limit. He gave all that He could and without gaining anything at all from us. And you know what? It was without any regret. Sometimes you may have given something to someone and you found that maybe they weren't all that thankful for what you gave them. And you think, I should take that gift back again. They weren't deserving it. They weren't worthy of it. Well, we're not worthy of the great gift that the Lord has given to us. But you know something? He never looks with regret at what He has done for us. He has given it willingly, freely, and lovingly. He sacrificed all. And in order for us to have this very precious union, oh, the love that drew salvation's plan, oh, the grace that brought it down to man, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Is there anything, believer, is there anything more that should motivate us to serve our Lord Jesus? John Calvin said, No words can properly express what this means, for who can find language to declare the excellency of the Son of God? Yet He it is who gave Himself as a price for our redemption, atonement, cleansing, satisfaction, and all the benefits which we derive from the death of Christ are here represented. And the words for me are very emphatic. It will not be enough for any man to contemplate Christ as having died for the salvation of the world unless he has experienced the consequence of his death and is enabled to claim it as his own. A solemn union, a sacrificial union. And I close with this. It's a supernatural union. Nevertheless, Paul said, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Nevertheless, what a great word this is. For if the whole matter, the whole matter had been terminated with me simply dying with Christ, we would be of all men most miserable, and we'd be haunted for all eternity. This is one of the greatest transitional words that we have in the New Testament. 
as it presents the extreme opposite of death. Nevertheless, he says, though I died with Christ, I now live with Christ. And because He lives, I live also and will live for all eternity. This is the vicarious union of Christ on the opposite extreme. The Lord stood in my place to die for my sin, but He stands in my place to live for me. And because of that, I live in Him. And if we then be risen with Christ, we are called to seek those things which are above. Yet not I, the apostle writes. He acknowledged again, I did not get to Christ on my own. I I was not saved by my own intellect or religious good works. I was saved because of the faith, the gift of the faith of Christ. He has given that faith to me. And so, in essence, the faith that I possess is the very faith that is the gift that God has given to me. It is the faith of Christ. And it becomes my faith. And therefore, I am able to believe and to believe on Him whom to know is life everlasting. This gives me great assurance, friends. It gives me great confidence in trial. It gives me great victory in my service and work for Christ. And I know this, that it is an everlasting union. It will never be terminated. There's not a best before date connected with this one. No, not at all. Now I belong to Jesus, the hymn writer wrote, and Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. And so in conclusion tonight, what does all this add up to? It adds up to for us a great hope, a hope that is not passing away, a hope that is forever and certain. It means for me an everlasting salvation. It's not something that I will be saved for a thousand years, a million years, and then something will happen and I'll fall into sin again and then lose my salvation. What kind of everlasting life would that be? No, friends. My union with Christ gives me a hope that is for eternity. It is an everlasting salvation. And it is also for me an impetus to tell others about what the Lord has done for me. It gives me encouragement to share my faith. It tells me that there is a reason why we are alive and a reason why God has saved me that I might serve Him. The Lord is pleased with our salvation. He is pleased that we have been set aside to be similar to Christ to take on His appearance. He's very pleased with us that we will be enabled to serve and live for Him. Yes, our dear friends, tonight we have this great union with our Lord Jesus Christ. And let us 
walk in the truth of that each day. Let's rejoice in it. Let's praise Him for it. Let's be encouraged about the whole matter and realize that it's all of grace and nothing of ourselves. We're going to close our service tonight by singing a hymn. Number 178. 178. The Savior to glory is gone. His sufferings and sorrows are past. His work is completed and done and shall for eternity last. Please stand as we sing. Father, we pray tonight that as this precious Scripture before us is so packed full of truth, and I ask, Lord, tonight that even a portion of this truth will be indelibly impressed upon every believer's heart tonight, that we will rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. But Lord, I also ask that the Spirit now would work in the hearts of any who are still unsaved. Let there be no deception. Take away the, the devil's duplicity. And I pray that tonight there would be joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. And so, Lord, now we pray that you would receive our thanks for the food that's provided downstairs and for the opportunity of time together, a sweet fellowship. Lord, bless us all. And then after that, take us to our homes in safety. And may this incoming week be a week filled with praise and worship and victory 
and opportunities of witnessing for Christ. Lord, make use of us, we pray, and help us all to be soul winners for the kingdom of our Lord. Who hear our prayers now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.